0: Our sins, they are many. Anybody outside of that, anybody disagree? You don't want to say that, do you? His mercy is more. Anybody else say, thank you, Jesus, for that? What a great, great song. Well, we come to the Word of God today, and we're going to be looking at some passages from 2 Chronicles 20 and Matthew 5. So because we're hearing our father's words, let's stand together and listen very, very carefully. We're going to be beginning by hearing uh, a few verses from the story of King Jehoshaphat of Judah. After he had come back to the Lord, things got worse. <laughs> and Well, I hate to tell you that, some, at least in the short run. And uh, so that's where we're going to be starting, the story of King Jehoshaphat recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 1 through 4, and then verse 12. The Moabites and the Ammonites and some of the Maonites came to wage war against King Jehoshaphat of Judah. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you. It's already in the heads on Tamar, alarmed. Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. And the king prayed, O oh God, we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes is on you. Now we're going to come to the text that we're going to be looking at through the Lent season, uh, just a part of the Sermon on the Mount as it's recorded in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the words of Jesus. At The very beginning of the first half of it, we read these words in verses 19 to 20. Jesus said, Anyone who sets aside one of the least of the commands of God's law and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then near the end of the first half, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of our Father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is the Word of God. You may take your seat. I want to begin with just one verse from what I just read you that has come to mean so much to me over these last five or six months since I've moved to this pastor at large job. I'll show it to you again. Oh, God, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Especially that first half, I bet you have. Oh, God, I don't know what to do. I've prayed it a lot. Um, But I want us all to learn to pray the second half, too. But our eyes are on you. Now what led, you heard it, to King Jehoshaphat praying that prayer just about 3,000 years ago was just what we heard. Several nations had come together to come against King Jehoshaphat, against Judah, and suddenly there was this huge army uh, army outside, and someone came to uh, Jehoshaphat and said, they're right at the border. So what Jehoshaphat did at that time was he called them to pray, and he prayed, and where he started was with this prayer, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I think what's made that verse become so important to me is because I've begun to see that even though uh, there are many things there when there are things that happen in our lives that we don't want know what to do, this verse shows me what should always be the first thing we should do when we're in a place of, of uncertainty. We should first turn our eyes to see the Lord, who he is, what he's promised to do, and how he's told us to live. Now, I've got to face this that doesn't usually come naturally to me. Does it to you? i tell you, when difficulties come and I don't know what to do, my first tendency is to try to fix it myself, try to work hard to get rid of the trial, or maybe to call some of you here at Lake Avenue Church and say, ah, will you join me in praying that God will take away this trouble and do it right now? And we can pray that, but I increasingly think that the first place that we should always begin is just the place where King Jehoshaphat started to say, but Father, whatever happens, our eyes are on you we're going to fix our eyes upon you and i'll tell you that brings us believe it or not to the beginning of this series that we're having that we're calling life aligned pastor jeff even before he headed out uh, outside the united states gathered together with a group of our pastors and prayerfully considered what we should do during this lent season from now all the way through uh, easter And they came to this idea that this is what God would have us to do together. And then Pastor Jeff called me and gave me, assigned me with this privilege of sort of opening up this series to you to try to give an overview of what this is all about. And so that's what I want to do because it is profound, the way that Jesus told us we should live our lives in those times in which we don't quite know what to do. It's profound in in the first half of the Sermon on the Mount because he begins— with what we should not do, what the Pharisees usually tried to do, and then he would teach us, don't do that. And then he pulled us forward to the very place where Jehoshaphat was and said, this is where you should begin. And where we should begin, life aligned, is getting our eyes fixed upon God so that our, whatever we do may be in keeping with his ways and with his word. So I I think the best thing I could do in the moments I have with you this morning is to just let Jesus guide us. What do you think of that? Good, i got four amens. That's that's enough for me to keep going. Uh, I'll tell you right there. So uh, we're gonna start with that first part of this Sermon on the Mount, where uh, Jesus told us what not to do. And in case you missed it, look again at verse 20. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not even enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to notice first that word righteousness. It's a word that you almost only use in church, but uh, it just means to be right. It's a beautiful word. All brokenness healed, all filth uh, cleaned up, all sins forgiven, all broken relationships Reconciled, is not that sound pretty beautiful? And that the word should actually be saying that to us. Uh, our versions, like the one that I've read to you, almost always translate the word that Jesus used as righteousness. But much of the Bible simply translates it justice. Justice. And that word means that all things that are wrong are made right. When we engage in it, we seek to have wrongs in our lives, in our church, and in our world righted. Now, the Pharisees were committed to it themselves, but they thought they could do it on their own. And I'll tell you, they worked very, very hard at it. One of the things that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees had done, they went back into the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses that they called the Torah. Make note of that. They put together All of the laws and the standards and the statutes that were there, they listed them down, and then they worked so hard to have their lives be right in the ways that were in keeping with those uh, commands. And I'll tell you, if you had lived back in that day, you would have looked at them and thought, if anybody in this world is righteous, it must be one of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And that's why I, I wasn't there when he first preached it, believe it or not. But I imagine they were shocked when they heard Jesus get up and preach, for you, my followers, unless your righteousness is greater than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you're not even gonna get into the kingdom of God. Can't you imagine what they thought? Wait a minute, fishermen? Tax collectors? More righteous than these? There's no hope for us, if that's really true of us. But I'll tell you, I I don't think I'm wrong about this, I I think this is right. I think even deep down, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees knew they were not keeping those laws of God perfectly. I'll try to tell you one of the reasons I'm so convinced of that, because over the centuries, as they tried to keep everything God said uh, perfectly, what I see that they were doing, they kept minimizing what God's commands were really all about. And I think they would minimize them. They'd sort of reduce them so that they could say, see, we're able to keep that, so so we're righteous. Yeah, the rest of the world out there, they aren't, but, you know, so that we're righteous. And when you read through this Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus said this, and before we get to the point, be perfect because God is perfect, Jesus took out several areas and tried to show them this is what God really intended, in spite of the fact that you're trying to reduce it. In what ways? I I just pulled out a couple of illustrations. Uh, God's intention, essentially, Jesus will say when you begin, and through this series, you're gonna hear some of our other pastors, especially Pastor Jeff, talking about these things. God's intention was that human beings should never abuse or harm any other human being. That was God's intent always, what he had in one of the Ten Commandments, uh, don't murder. But they had minimized this to the point that if you don't really just go out there and shoot somebody in the streets, you know, commit uh, homicide, then you can say, well, I can say anything I want to anybody, and I haven't killed anybody, so I'm righteous. Or or you could move on down to another illustration that's there, verses 27 to 32 of Matthew 5. Uh, Jesus would say, God's intent was always that in our sexual practice, we will live lives of purity with our thoughts, with our words, and with our actions. And that should translate even into the way that we deal with marriages. There should be sexual faithfulness within our marriages. And yet they had reduced that, you can read Jesus' words, to sort of say, no, no, all he was talking about is one technical aspect of adultery, so that you could say, well, you know, I've never had sex with another man's wife, specifically, so I'm righteous, I'm okay. Uh, You want me to show you one more? I will, anyway. Uh, Verses 33 to 37, Jesus said God's intent was that human beings should always be honest and speak truthfully, and yet over the years, because they found that so hard to do, even as we do, right? They had minimized that by saying, well, the only time you really have to speak truthfully is if you take an oath, and even a specific kind of oath, if you take an oath in the name of heaven, then you have to speak the truth so that they can go out there and tell all kinds of lies and still say, well, I didn't do it under oath, so I'm still righteous. Do you see what they were doing? They were establishing their own self-righteousness. There's so much more. What Jesus was telling them and telling us is the way that God created us as people he loves and in his image actually to live our lives. And at least this I'll say in just this overview kind of a sermon. Jesus was certainly saying that you and I can't go out of here and claim to be his followers and live harmful and abusive lives to those that that we encounter, to get out there and be sex-obsessed in all of our actions and our thoughts, And just get out there all the time and and tell lies and say, well, I've only told a few white lies. And still be able to come to church and say, well, I'm okay. I'm not as bad as those people out here in this world. Jesus says, that is not what I have come to give my life to bring about in your life. I have come to do something much better and much more in your life. That is not how you're supposed to live your life, sort of minimize the rules and say, well, oh, I've kept these. It's kind of like when I grew up as a little kid in high school, we'd have that little jingle that says, I don't drink and I don't chew and I don't go with girls who do. See, that, I, I, uh, uh, I haven't done those kinds of things, but look out here in the world, in our in Southern California, oh, I'm not as bad as those awful movie makers in Hollywood who make those, I'm not like they are, those people in the entertainment industry, I'm okay. Or, or go out uh, into our own city. I don't listen to that awful rap music like, like the kids in our high school do. I'm okay, they're not. I'm, that is not how we are to live our lives. That is self-righteousness. And, and Jesus says God's righteousness will always exceed and really be better than self-righteousness. If you try to, try to just be self-righteous, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what we're not to do. So it might be good to see what we're supposed to do. And that takes us all the way to the end of this first half of the sermon. Jesus taught us what to do. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The whole point, I, I talk, I've talked to you about this all the time, that you and I made in God's image have been created to have our lives be recreated when we follow Jesus, so that they will glorify God, so that they will more and more reflect the ways that God is himself by, by looking at his ways, looking at his character, listening to what he has said, this is how you are supposed to live. Uh, note this, Jesus was not saying in his uh, Sermon on the Mount, that the ways of God revealed in the Old Testament are to be ignored, they don't matter anymore. Just trust me and it doesn't matter how you live. He was not saying that. If you miss verses 19 and 20, go back and read those again, (laughs) again and you'll see that's not what he was saying, nor was he saying, oh, you've got to surpass the Pharisees. You've got to have more rules and more laws and work even harder to establish that you have merited being in the eternal kingdom of God by your own life. He was not saying that. He knew why he had come and what it would cost. He knew he was going to have to die for our sins and then afterwards to cleanse us, but also leave us his spirit so that our lives can begin to be more like the God in whose image we have all been made. Ah, Amen. So, what he says, I hope you see it, when he, when he goes through these six different areas in chapters 5, saying, this is what it looks like, this is what it looks like, he ends by saying, what I mean is, make sure that you align your life with the God that you are coming to know through faith in me and who has made himself known through his word. This idea of aligning our lives with something that we set our eyes on. We all understand this in the 21st century. I was trying to think of some illustrations, and so I'll I'll tell you one. Uh, When I grew up in West Virginia, the cars I had were not new cars, I'm just telling you. And sometimes they were so messed up that even the headlights were out of alignment. I put a picture up here to help you to see a little bit what that was like. For me, in my car, it was worse than any picture I could find. I remember my brother saying, I drove past you, and that one light was shining so much in this direction, that it just blinded me. He said, let's go and get these things aligned. So we drove up to a wall, and he went over there and got them fixed so that they would shine in a way that went in the right direction. You see what I mean? Maybe even a better illustration is for any of you who have been in business or any kind of really... Uh, place that has a mission or a direction you try to go, we talk about the fact that all of the people who work with us and their energies should be aligned according to vision. Have you heard that? This is where we are headed. That's what we're trying to do here at the church, isn't it? A church in motion, a church whose vision is what is going to honor God and fulfill his mission in this world. So I've found this picture for all of you engineer types that like vector-type things uh, We try to align according to a vision, and that is what Jesus says. I have come to make the Father known to you. And when you come to know him, you begin to live your life the way that Jehoshaphat in his prayer told us to live it. When the difficult decisions come, you set your eyes on God, what he has said, the commands he has given, the way that he is, and walk in that direction. Now, in between, At first, what not to do and what we are to do. Jesus taught us, third, what a life aligned with God looks like in daily life. Uh, Pastor Jeff and the team will be going through so much of this in the time, but I'll just show you a little bit. You have heard that it was said. This was that minimizing of what God really intended for us. But I tell you, he told us how to live our lives. Now, the thing I want you to notice here in the moments that I have with you is that both the Pharisees and the teachers of the law on one side and the followers of Jesus, like us on the other, both want to do what God has called us to do. But the reason why we do it and the way we actually are able to carry it out is so enormously different. It's never a life aligned by me working hard, you know, a self-empowered self-sort so, of vindicating sort of way of life, trying to show everybody else how, how righteous and religious I am. It is a God-aligned, spirit-empowered way of life that keeps our eyes on the Lord even as we're growing to become more of what he would have us to be. So I was thinking, how can I put this? What does this look like? I always ask that question. How, how might this actually uh, play, play out, that we become followers of Jesus, who then do. We are those who are rescued and declared right and declare someday your life will fully glorify God, but now we are also to live in keeping with the ways of God. So I've put together an acrostic for you for being a God-aligned doer. We'll just take those four letters. Doer, D-O-E-R, in case your spelling is weak. So D, discover. O, own. I, and here I'm going to use it as a verb, I, where you're headed, and R, refresh. So let me talk to you about that a little bit. If it's the longing of your heart, you come to Lake today, and uh, you know there are areas of your life that are not what they should be, and you long to glorify God. Where, do, where should you start? I think you start with Discover a new commitment to continuously learn about who God is. Uh, So much of it comes because God has revealed himself in Scripture, so through the study of Scripture, uh, especially through looking at the life of Jesus, who makes God known to us. So I I always encourage you, read uh, the Gospels. And also, I think, doing that within the community of faith that we have here, like at Lake Avenue Church, and that's why... uh, our pastors are working so hard to find ways you can be sure to be in a small group because uh, you need to discover what God has said and who he is, or you don't know how to live. You cannot apply what you don't know, right? Anybody agree with me there? You can't live what you have never learned. And, and the word of God, it just begins with its very opening chapters, God makes known to us who he is and what he is like. Start there. Genesis 1 and 2, just start there and get to know more and more about him. It might be that if you want to go through quickly, you want to jump then after you've gone there to Exodus 34. That's a place where Moses, who had been trying to walk with God for a long time, turned to him and said, God, you know everything about me, but I don't know you, what you really like. Tell me your name. Do you know that story? Chuck, you preached about this last Sunday, and he made himself known to different aspects of his character uh, that were quoted again and again and again in these tough times in which God's people have gone. And so I'm just going to put that, those verses up here for you yet again. You can tell I threw my notes to the side. I think I do. We have those verses up here, if you can find them. Um, so oh, here we go. All right, on you. There, we ha- I found it at last. Who am I? I am the Lord, which Yahweh, Jehovah. So he- who is on one side? The compassionate and gracious God. Anybody say, thank you, Lord. Slow to anger. Abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Anybody like that? God is a compassionate, loving God. He loves you with an everlasting love, but not leaving the guilty unpunished. What do we see there? We see that God on one side is holy, and so the sin that devastates our lives in this world, that's not supposed to remain there. But at the same time, we will find out over and over again, he says, I love you, I'm compassionate, I am merciful, I love to show mercy, that when you run to him, you're gonna find that he does receive you. It's one of the most thrilling parts of my life as a follower of Jesus, is that uh, now I've walked with him well over 60 years, and I keep learning more about him. And it does call me away from those things that displease him, but I'll tell you, I just bask in the God who loves me and who is merciful to me. That this God is both the holy, omnipotent creator and my Abba Father, who loves me with an everlasting love. That's where it starts. Gotta discover more and more about who God is. Oh, own. Uh, own up to the fact that you're not God. That isn't up there, is it? Oh, own up to even to this fact. You can't make yourself right with God on your own. And I think this is the biggest obstacle to any of us actually have our lives becoming more and more the way God would have our lives to be. That is thinking, I can do this. I can align my life with God myself. The biggest obstacle is our stubbornness and pride. That was the problem the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had. They had to show that I can do it myself, so we'll make the law small enough so I can actually do it. This year, I've been going through a wonderful daily devotional. It's by a man named Paul Tripp. I've been doing it together with a group of men here in the church whom I just love so much. It's trip, T-R-I-P-P, trip. put a couple of P's on there. It's called New Morning Mercies, and just one phrase that he uses I really like. What you need to avoid is your delusions of strength. Anybody agree? What you need to avoid is your delusions of strength. Or if I can put it in another way, back when I was a university president, I would sometimes hear people say, once you're a senior, you don't want to be a sophomore again. Once you're a senior, you don't want to be a sophomore again. Anybody who's ever been a student or is a student right now, you know that is true. Once you're a senior, you don't want to go back into those dorms. You want to be out there in the house where you're living together with your friends. Once you are a senior, you don't want to go back to that undergraduate time when nobody respects you and you don't know a whole lot about what's going on. Once you're a senior, you don't want to be a sophomore again. And we've got to become like children again sometimes to say, Father, without you, I am nothing. Ah, I can't even tell you how much this has spoken to me. You know, I've had awfully good job titles, for a long, long time. And I've just been thinking in these days, once you've been a president, you don't even want to be a dean again, much less a sophomore or a freshman, I'm telling you. And here, closer to home, once you've been a senior pastor, You don't want to be a pastor at large again. You don't even know what that is. (laughs) A a pal, I'm a a pal, a pastor. The Pharisees did not want to admit that they couldn't become righteous on their own. So they worked so hard to prove that they could do it, but I'll tell you, you need to own what we sang before. My sins, they are many. Ah, your mercy is more. I'll just put that text up here, I, amen. Just look at this text. We're, I hope we're gonna sing it again, Dwayne. Let's just see if we. What, what love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. For us to become what God would have us to be, we start by discovering who He is. We say, I'm not there. We own who we are. And then that just brings us naturally to this third component, the E, the I. Just slow down. Lift your eyes toward God by remembering who He is, what He is like. I keep adding what He has done in the Lord Jesus what he's promised to do. I'll tell you, when you get your eyes off of yourself and off of even some of the rules and standards, off, off all the problems out here in the world, and you, you see God, you see what Jehoshaphat was, was praying about when he says, Lord, our eyes are on you. You are greater than even all these armies. You are greater than my failures. Lord, my eye is going to be on you whatever happens in this place. You see, all all of this begins and fits together. We discover again who God is, we hold on to that, we live in light of that. We acknowledge with humility who we are, but that God loves us anyway. Then we keep our eyes on him and keep walking toward him in the alignment of our lives. Are you seeing that? And when you do that, then you can come to this R, this refresh, Uh, consciously, intentionally, renew, uh, refresh your commitment to God Tell him your life is not fully; is now fully in His hands, in spite of the fact there's still so much remaking to be done. So that right now, Lord, I see where You are. I'll go wherever You want me to go. I'll do whatever You want me to do. As long as You are there, I'll keep my eyes on You. Uh, the Jehoshaphat story. You saw, heard what he did when I read Scripture. Uh, he called all the people of Judah together to fast and to pray, and then he, he prayed, Lord, we can't do it. But I don't know if you know this. I hope you'll read 2 Chronicles 20. He had come to a point at last that even before God stepped in, he called for a worship and praise service. Even while the enemy was they were still in the midst of it, he, knowing who God is, Knowing God is greater than, than his own sins and greater than the enemy that is out there, he called for a praise and worship service knowing that God is the God who works all these things together to bring about his good in this world and to bring about his good in our lives. And I'll tell you what I see in Jehoshaphat's life is when you're in the midst of one of these times where you don't know what to do, you can just turn away from God and never show up at church anymore, but you can turn back to him, and it has this power, the trials have this power to turn us back to him and refresh and revive our own faith. I didn't hear any, thank you, Lord. This is why people pray for sometimes, Lord, don't take me out of this trial yet. I I, I need that to be there so that I'll turn to you and find you to be sufficient. How many times have you ever prayed that? The difficulties that Jehoshaphat, like the one Jehoshaphat was in, has the power to bring you back to God and revive your faith. Uh, I don't know if you're with me. I heard T.D. Jakes preach a sermon in which he used the illustration of codfish and catfish. Do you, you know anything about that? So, um, just over a century ago, at the turn of the century, in fact, codfish were really big back in Boston. Now, Chris, you don't even like fish, but if back then, you might have. The codfish, uh, they, were, they were in colorary, uh, culinary delight uh, everywhere, but almost only in the East Coast because they were so flaky and they were so fresh, and everybody wanted to have some codfish, so they tried to ship them. So when they first shipped them, they'd get there. They were not. They were mushy and they were stale. So then they said, "Well, we have got to pack them on ice or pack them in pack them in salt or something." And they tried that and they shipped them out here, and they were flaky and they were not flaky. They were mushy and they were stale. So somebody got the really good idea. You'd take the train car and transform it from a train car into a saltwater aquarium, and you would put in. The codfish there, so I'll tell you, when it arrived, let's say out here in California by train, the the codfish were alive, but when they prepared them, they were still mushy and stale. (laughs) So they began to realize that to stay fresh, the uh, codfish needed to still move, and someone pointed out that the natural enemy of the codfish is a catfish. So I'm gonna put a picture up here just so you can picture this happening. So they packed those codfish in that train car with the aquarium that was there. They put a couple of catfish in there and went across the country. Those codfish were swimming all the time, trying to stay away from those catfish. When they came and they prepared them, they were as fresh as if they had just caught them. Sometimes we need some catfish in our lives. Let me ask you right now, do you have any catfish in your life right now? I bet you do. You may just be telling people, tell God to get these catfish out of here. You might need those catfish more than you need anything else in your life because they draw you to the Lord. They take you away from self-sufficiency, from this staleness that can become religiosity. I've got some catfish in my life right now, and I'm trying to learn how to thank, thank God for them. Even think about your prayer life. think about. You pray after you've been a Christian a long time, especially the Lord's Prayer. You, you just, our Father in heaven, I'm supposed to pray this, but then the catfish bites you. Oh, our Father, you are here. I've, I've got to really pray. Ah, you slip back into that staleness. Uh, Holy is your name. Ah, oh, oh. Yeah, you're different from anybody else. You're bigger than these problems that are there. And I'll tell you, if you begin to pray in the midst of all the trials, by the time you get to that phrase, deliver me from evil, you are not praying like a Congregationalist anymore. You are a full-blown Pentecostal. (laughs) Lord Jesus, take this away. Lord Jesus, help me to know how to live in the midst of this all I, w- I want to say to you is this. Uh, if you can learn from what Jesus had to say in this Sermon on the Mount and the way that I see Jehoshaphat actually living it out, whatever you are going through in these days, God can use that in your life to make it so that you will not be a bored, boring, mundane, stale, mushy Christian. So whenever those... Catfish come. I've I've been trying to view them as gifts from God to keep me fresh in my faith, keep me fresh in my love for people, uh, keep me from being complacent about things because they keep pushing me back to God. Uh, it means that when you don't know what to do, you turn back to him and you'll begin to see what he is like and you'll do things in keeping with it. When the trial is enormous, you'll turn back to him and know that he's bigger than that trial. When it's a failure, yet get again. You'll remember he'll forgive you when you come back to him and begin to empower you through his spirit. This is the message I want to give to you today. Uh, discover who God is. Make your life one that keeps your eyes on him. Own that you are not that. Bring to him those things in humility that are not yet what God would have them to be. I, God, and remember what he is like and then refresh by making a brand new commitment to him and you will pray as Jehoshaphat prayed. Oh God, I don't know what to do, but my eye is on you and then continue, and I will walk with you. I will walk toward you until my life and the lives of all of us here at Lake Avenue Church and all that God has created, all those are aligned with you and, Lord, actually are made perfect as you, oh my God, May it be to his glory. Amen.